Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Dr. John Sweeney. John Sweeney studied at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where he ended up completing a PhD under the direction of Jim Data. John also taught undergraduate courses in future studies, political science, and world religions. And he also served as a researcher at the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies. John has worked with many universities, international development and humanitarian aid agencies, not-for-profit foundations, Fortune 500 companies, and educational and cultural organizations. Additionally, he's worked with public sector and civil service foresight and innovation units, such as Singapore Centre for Strategic Futures, Georgia's Public Service Development Agency, and Dubai's Mohammed Bin Rashid Centre for Government Innovation. At present, John is Assistant Professor of Futures and Foresight at Nahos University in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Welcome to FuturePod, John. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a privilege to be included as part of this amazing collection. So thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, participating. So, John, question one. Um, everyone who comes into the field has a story of how they got into it, and your story will be interesting, I'm sure, because it obviously spans a period from Hawaii to Kazakhstan, but really um, we'd all love to hear the John Sweeney story. Thank you. Well, I, I think like most of the stories that I've heard, there's been uh, a certain attraction to futures, but a lot of people have had a very circuitous route uh, I think uh, my my pathway is is emblematic of uh, a certain kind of searching and seeking. So there's uh, there's a few different versions, and I'll try to weave them together a bit. On the professional side, uh, my bachelor's degree was in history and philosophy, and I always say that that helped me think about uh, sort of frames of the past and how to make sense of you know how we carry the past forward, but also how to ask questions. And then I ended up doing a, a master's degree in religious studies, and that really helped me think about people and people's lives and what values they had and what was sort of driving their perspective. And then I actually ended up falling into futures. So my master's degree was at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and through a personal contact, I was, we were out in the park one day, and I was reading Nietzsche. As you do. <laughs> As, as one does in, in Hawaii, right? And, uh, and she was reading something by this guy, Jim Dater, and we started to have this conversation. And next thing I knew, I was enthralled by this. I had reached out to him. I had set up a meeting, and it was the only doctoral program that I had applied to. I initially thought I was going to go back to philosophy, pursue a PhD there at the Hawaii University because it's, uh, it's a strong comparative focus. But after talking with Jim, I sort of resigned myself that this, this is where I needed to be. And Jim is such a strong, you know, such a strong personality and such an engaging figure that I, I thought this is exactly who I want to, to learn from. And, and I think very happily, I discovered that there is an entire community of people uh, built around him, the Manoa School, as we call it. And so I was really fortunate to be able to, to be part of that. I think interweaving the personal aspect, I actually dropped out of high school when I was 15 years old. So for me, coming back to the academy and having a relationship with, with university and school was, um, was, it wasn't arduous in the sense that I found it to be difficult, but I, I probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I, I always were questioning the sort of institutional structures and mechanisms. And and actually, in conversations with Jim and others, I actually find that dropping out of high school was uh, a bit of a leg up for me as a futurist because I wasn't attached to certain mindsets. I mean, I, I didn't get indoctrinated in certain kinds of ways. Yeah. So I feel that my, my whole enculturation around education was quite different. And coming back as a non-traditional student who was working a job on campus and off campus, I think brought me a certain perspective to, towards this kind of work. And uh, I certainly have had an immense amount of privilege in my own life to be able to, you know, come back to this and to be able to study. But I've, 
I feel like that experience for me was quite formative and, and has always kind of brought me back to thinking about futures as a practice that, that ought to be helpful, you know, not just for large institutions and organizations, uh, but for people like myself who dropped out of high school, uh, people who have questions, uh, people who, you know, are unsure about their futures given the variety of complex challenges and, and issues that we're facing. So I always feel like that, that kind of personal, um, professional kind of interweaving, uh, which again was, was completely serendipity. Uh, and certainly it wasn't always easy to go through, but, but that, that really brought me to a, a space to be able to think about, you know, futures that were more inclusive, futures that were hopefully more, you know, democratic, uh, futures that were more engaging. And, and I think that my journey into futures has been, you know, thinking about that kind of, you know, journey for others as well. And, and are there opportunities to use this as a medium to, to try to change, um, you know, change the world around us? Well, I mean, there's a sense there that, I mean, I think part of the enculturation that I see and have, of course, experienced is that if you come from privilege and really, you know, getting to an educational institution means you are privileged, you can tend to think that the future is somehow going to be a continuation of, of privilege, of opportunity. It's kind of going to unfold with, with people constantly having resource and opportunity to create the future. And then, of course, there's the other thing, which, of course, the future is uh, disruptive in anything but certain. Yeah, and I think that's sort of, you know, we talk to the Manoa School about the kind of, uh, and, and, and Jim Dater uses the term of the kind of crackpot realism and, and sometimes use the phrase the tyranny of the present as this sort of extended present or this continuation. And I think now that I'm, I'm in a position to teach futures and foresight, you know, back again in the university setting, trying to be quite mindful of that, especially teaching in a dynamic space. So for me, it really is that kind of balance of, you know, what, how do we have conversations around what we want to preserve? You know, how do we understand tradition, religion, culture, values as things that we want to endure and carry forward in the future, realizing all along the way that obviously, you know, things happen and there are disruptions, there are transformations, societal shifts, uh, and that those are things that we can't fully and completely manage and we've never been able to. So how do we get better at sort of navigating that, but also at having the things that are important to us really endure? And obviously a lot of futures work focuses on the questions around change and novelty, but I think it's precisely the questions around continuity and, and how we, we endure and, and keep the things that, that we, we, we value moving forward that I think is also quite, quite critical. Yeah, well, again, and that would be the historian coming out in you. <laughs> Indeed. Again, one of the things I've always found challenging, and, and I found this increasingly as I taught, particularly when I taught, I found it less so teaching at the postgraduate level, but I actually found it quite difficult at the undergraduate level, because what I found was I came from a kind of critical frame, you know, so, you know, you taught people to challenge assumptions, to challenge the social construction of reality. And I found that when you had young men and women who were early in their university career, they were trying desperately to construct reality. <laughs> um, it wasn't always helpful having a smart ass up the front of the room um, <laughs> telling them that actually the future is actually a social construction and why don't you construct a different one? Yeah, I think that's, the, that's one of the challenges that I'm seeing is, you know, dealing, um, dealing with the variety of identities and maybe dealing is not the right word, but how do you engage productively with, you know, essentially uh, a generation that's being bombarded by images of the future that, is in many ways having having realities constructed for them that that maybe implicitly or explicitly are meant to be controlling, uh, and to find ways to you know give productive outlets. I, I think again what I find most appealing is I've we've got an opportunity next year uh, at the university to have sort of an intro freshman level futures class, and my hope is is that it's the kind of course that the students would never forget that it's this unforgettable sort of learning moment and opportunity and you know it's an intro to futures and foresight so we're not you know it's not going to be this you know hitting them over the head with a lot of theory it's not going to be you know going back and okay we're doing this sort of long history it's 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 meant to be an introduction to help them you know understand what this is how it can add value potentially to their future studies we're developing some other tracks with the uh, uh, business uh, business degree and looking at other options as well but I'm really excited about that because it's a chance to really hook people 
Yeah. Uh, and, and not everyone needs to have a degree in futures. Not everyone needs to, you know, huh. do this, you know, all the time professionally. I think that's the real opportunity here is to take, you know, see it as an ecology and to kind of spread it like a virus. Before we move on from this, this question of the, your story, I mean, you mentioned, you know, obviously the pivotal role that uh, Jim played in that and uh, also the woman who, who, you, who you met in the park. Are there other people that, you know, again, looking back, you know, you know, the beauty of looking back to kind of tell the narrative of the, of the story arc. Are there other people or other points that you know, were really important that you want to acknowledge? Yes. Well, I, I would have never found myself in Hawaii were it not for my undergraduate mentor and advisor. So I had a philosophy professor who actually was a professor. He taught the religious studies course I had as well. Uh, and and Dr. Jones was this absolute character who was probably the the best spokesperson that the University of Hawaii could have ever had. Yeah. Uh, not not that not that Hawaii really needs someone to pitch it, right? But needless to say, he was he was essentially you know creating this sort of critical mass of students, and and we started and we had a philosophy club. We started the Green Party on campus. We were you know active and a lot. And and to be honest, we were misfits. We were non-traditional students. We were, you know, students who didn't quite fit in anywhere else. And that was really essential for me because it actually gave me, I think probably for the first time in an educational setting and, and maybe even, you know, personally in a meaningful way, a real sense of community. So uh, there are actually a group, I think, of eight or nine of us that, that have the same tattoo. And we actually have the the tattoo of our of our philosophy club uh, and in different forms, um, and so like I, I think I think sort of if if I link that experience with uh, my experience at the University of Hawaii with Jim Dater and the Manoa School, it really reinforced for me the importance of community, and I feel that I feel connected to this global kind of futures community, and I think actually the again the ble bleeding the personal and the professional that that that's something that I've been really attracted to. I mean, you know, there's people that you know of their work and you kind of, you know, run in sort of the same circles and maybe you see at a conference once a year or once every two years. But there's that, there's, I want to, I want to call it an intimacy that, that develops. There's a shared sense of connectedness be, because of what we're doing and why we're doing it that I absolutely love. And, and I, I can't imagine doing anything else, and, and I'm, I feel really blessed, I suppose, is the only way to say it, to, to be able to participate within this community. And, and so there, I think those experiences really were essential, of, of seeing the value of community, of participating within a community, and then seeing this community within the future space really, uh, uh, really emerge. And, and again, obviously, I've been extremely privileged through, through Jim and others within the Manoa School. So, you know, Sohail has been amazing as a, as a mentor and as an advisor and as a, as a friend and colleague, uh, Wendy Schultz and others. And to learn from the different generations of the Manoa School, I think, has been, uh, has been quite, quite extraordinary for me. I agree entirely. I mean, it's part, that, was part of, that was part of our, um, our motivation to create the podcast series because we wanted the conversations between the generations to continue. And we wanted to use modern technology to take a very old <laughs> process of talking to people. Yeah, and and I think what I what I appreciate about the series is that it allows it allows that capturing of the personal story. And I I think we feel the same way. It's it's the people that really make this quite special, right? You yeah. you see people who are inquisitive, who are curious, who are weird, who are strange, who are into asking these different things. And, they're seeing things differently and asking different kinds of questions. And I think that's what I, I like about it so much. Okay, question two, John, is the one where I encourage the guests to, I mean, to talk at a technical level about a framework or a method or some approach that is both useful in the practice of, of either doing it or teaching it or whatever, but also something that is core to your practice. So what do you want to talk to the guest about? Well, in the last couple of years, I've been really fortunate to be in a position to utilize and develop a variety of forms of, of games and simulations. Um, right. and, and knowing, you know, knowing your work with the poly game and, and, you know, Seeing that develop over time, I think, has been quite extraordinary to see the field as a whole 
um, really, you know, come come to this this point and and to say that this is something that we want to intentionally and willfully and consciously deploy and to, you know, be able to utilize. I think has been quite instructive. So my own my own kind of journey with games is is really just because I opened my big mouth and I was working on a grant project with Jim Dater and Aubrey Yee, and uh, we had the opportunity to do some research that led to a book. Uh, called Mutative Media, and we were looking at communication technology and power relations, uh, past, present, and futures. And I sort of said at the end, well, why don't we create a game instead of just, you know, doing the standard kind of, you know, scenarios process. And, and so we created a, a game that utilized mobile augmented reality and uh, experiential futures hybrid. Uh, I will say that a large part of my engagement with games is completely due to the amazing professional relationship, uh, personal as well, that I've had with Aaron Rosa, who also went through the, the Hawaii program. So we've sort of been co-conspirators, if you will, on a variety of these games. But also, I, I think, you know, it's been an opportunity to rethink the workshop space and to rethink the nature of, of what these engagements are meant to do. So I think actually part of the attraction for me for games is is how do we further democratize the workshop space, knowing that there's always you know, interpersonal dynamics, uh, knowing that there's always a variety of you know, aptitudes for engagement, you know, personalities, even, even like, let's, let's call it intellectual metabolisms, right? That people work in different ways. You know, groups would have at the table level different metabolisms for completing you know, exercises. And I think what I like is precisely the nonverbal elements and aspects so it's not always about sort of winning the game. It's not simply about, okay, is there a particular incentive for play? But how to leverage these dynamics to facilitate and create an experience uh, that can be a bit more horizontal. A lot of my games don't even have what we would technically call a win condition. A lot of the games and simulations we've worked on, it's, it's not about sort of a certain product at the end. Uh, I think one of the, the phrases I've always leaned on in this context is, you know, the process here is the real product. So, you know, using games to sort of re-engineer certain exercises. So, you know, for example, like I, you know, sort of hacked and mashed together different versions of, uh, of the Paula game, you know, the game that, that you had developed over time and included different elements or taken a certain scenario exercise or experience and seeing that happen. And I, and I love that this is happening with others, right? So I know Jose has been using this, Jose Ramos, Bridget Engler has been doing different kinds of games, obviously Stuart Candy's work. Uh, using lots of game simulations, but seeing other people really kind of play in the space. So I think from my perspective, it's it's been seeing games now really proliferate and, and finding the kind of like the, the bleeding edge. So obviously games about the future being built by non-futurists, but also uh, futurists building games that kind of bleed over into other areas and facets. And so really having games further enhance the multi- or, or transdisciplinary nature of, of, of inquiry that, that is at the very heart of futures, I think has been, um, over the last few years especially, has been quite, quite interesting and quite great. And I will say on the, on the client side, because obviously as a consultant and as a practitioner, you know, sometimes we don't always get to dictate what the ask is, what the RFPs are. Um, but actually more, more clients, uh, more people wanting to see this be used and, and seeing the efficacy, seeing the, the validity of it as a, as a means and, and mode of inquiry, I think has been, it's been quite, quite great. I agree. I mean, I'd go further, John. I mean, I'd actually say that in my experience working with organisations and people, there's actually a hunger for people to be playful. Mm. It's no, it, I mean, there are, there are situations where a group does not want to play, but that is, that is exceptional. I mean, in most situations, if you give people a chance to create something from apparently nothing, just themselves, people just jump into it. They are somewhat, I won't say reckless, but they're certainly, they're certainly willing to, to kind of expose themselves to an experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, play becomes not just a strategy, but it can become a really useful and fruitful tactic for kind of for kind of disarming the overall context. So having used and created games with with the UN and with government and and even when I was at the International Federation Red Cross Red Crescent Societies, we did large scale games using WhatsApp with thousands of people from all over the world. It was it was really amazing to see people kind of gravitate to it as as an opportunity to and again to 
to, to play, but to play, as we say, you know, really serious games oh, yeah. to, to realize that the questions are quite profound. So, yeah, I agree. I, I think I think play is the is is on the one hand a very sort of you know obtuse kind of metric. It's 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 not clear what that means, and that means different things in different spaces. But there's something innate about play from from I guess a development perspective certainly, but uh, the opportunity to to deploy it uh, again tactically has been uh, has been quite quite profound. And I agree. I, I think I see the hunger. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the challenges is, you know, we have and we're facing a range of extraordinarily complex issues. Precisely the best ideas are going to come from from being creative, being yeah. uh, a bit obnoxious, right? Being a bit immature, being playful yeah. within these spaces, because clearly what we've been doing hasn't been working. So let's let's find a better, more, you know, efficacious way for, for asking, asking these questions. So. I think what you're getting to, and I'm going to kind of pose the question, is that People are intelligent enough to know that by their nature, games destroy the hegemonic control of knowledge. Mm. Um, they, are, they are anarchic in the way they, they operate. And people, to me, that's a big part of what people are responding to is the chance to get outside the rules and create their own. Mm. Yes, I think that I've seen that. Well, let me, let me start over. I, as a, as someone to play games with, I'm probably horrible, uh, you know, because I, I want to stretch the borders and the boundaries. And even within the game space, I want to ask what if. So I, I'm, I'm probably as a gamer, not, not, not the best person, not that I cheat or anything, but that, you know, I want to kind of really push the game itself mm. as, a, as a medium. Um, but I think that what I've seen, and, and let's say as a, as a facilitator, when people have asked me, oh, should we be doing this? Should we be doing that? I always throw it back to them and I say, well, you know, don't just play the game, play with the game, yeah. right? You know, actually find a way of, of you know, breaking it, of, of kind of, you know, hacking it a bit and, and kind of mutating it as an experience. Um, and some groups find that really frustrating. Other groups say, great, you know, go away and come back in 30 minutes and let us do our thing. So I always, I always feel like that element, um, aside from the inherent uncertainty within the game itself, right? I mean, this is why we play games. If, if we knew the outcome, there'd be no need to play. But it's precisely the, you know, the sort of malleability of, of the outcome and the uncertainty and the anticipation at the heart of those games that I, uh, that I, I think has been quite, quite instructive and quite successful. And, and I will say that actually, you know, if, if games can be deployed in certain contexts within a certain, you know, frame, uh, and, and I'm thinking especially of the, the game that Aaron and I had done with the European Commission as the first project of their policy lab, where, you know, I mean, people are wearing, let's be honest, they're wearing blue suits and, and the ties are always tied, right? I mean, it's yep. not essentially the context that you would imagine you'd walk in with a game, but it's been really successful there. And they've now done like half a dozen versions of it. There's a second article coming out about it. And I think it's, it's precisely that the times that we live in are, are showing that we need, we need new and different ways. And, and, and clearly games have been used for a long time. Um, so I'd say that I'd rather talk about it within the context of generations, right? We're seeing a new generation of games, obviously being built on the, the shoulders of previous games and simulations uh, that were around, but a, a real attentiveness to, like you said, bring play to the to the forefront of the experience. Yeah. Is there a? I mean, is that particular game? Could you explain it in a bit more about the detail of the game? You know, could you explain it? Yeah, you know, in, in say five minutes, as both a process and as a setup. Yeah, yeah, I can give a quick overview. So the 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 whole inception of the project was around a, a study about what does a sustainable EU look like out to the year 2035. And so, you know, to be honest, the commission does what they always do. They they ran a bunch of Delphi's expert interviews, desk research, and they came up with a 100-page report that no one's going to read, uh, the 20-page report that, you know, some people are going to thumb through, and then the five-page executive summary that, you know, if you don't know it at the water cooler, you're going to look foolish, right? Yeah. Um, and then through these connections, I ended up giving a presentation about games uh, in Brussels, and that started the conversation. The next thing we know, Aaron and I are back in, in Brussels actually doing game development with them. And what we decided that the, the best sort of setup and flow for that particular game was to actually kind of walk people into that future. So the game actually, you're, you're starting in, in the present, and you're kind of visioning out to 2035. There is a, a very simple role play aspect. So maybe you're an EU level policymaker, maybe you're a national level policymaker, maybe you're an academic, maybe you're a student. 
And based on the particular scenario, because they already had set scenarios. So we were dealing with a pre-existing scenario framework. They had used the, the two by two matrix approach. And so the, the idea is that you inhabit those worlds with a particular role and you kind of walk into those futures attempting to achieve a particular vision. Now, all along the way, you're taking actions. And of course, there are disruptions. So we've got a, a bit of a deck of megatrends and you kind of roll the dice to kind of see how they're operative in, within the particular time horizons. And so the idea is you, you kind of stage these encounters with the megatrends uh, and you also kind of learn a little bit more about the scenarios as you go. Uh, but then you get to actually add and, and deepen the scenarios by the particular actions that you take. So uh, they, have, they have open source, the actual game, and I believe some of the additions are available for download. And they've, they've done it on a wide array of topics. So that was a sustainable EU. There was one on nanotechnology. There was another on food. They've just released a version on migration. So obviously now that with, with the EU still confronting and, and having to deal with the challenges of, you know, a variety of people seeking uh, solace and sanctity because of the crisis elsewhere, uh, that they thought this would be really instructive and helpful to use to think about some of the longer term implications. Uh, so what, uh, so thinking about it from a design perspective, what we actually tried to do was to design a, a generic system that can be utilized for a variety of topics. Uh, but also to give people an experience of, of kind of futures thinking. And I, I think it was successful in, in, in both regards. Uh, and I think as a system and as a platform, it is meant to kind of, you know, provide a bit of an enhancement of a scenario experience. Mm. So actually the game itself really operates just as a, as a structured way of exploring scenarios by using gaming dynamics. I'm going to move on to question three, which is the one where I ask John Sweeney, citizen of the world, what are the emerging futures that get your attention, that cause you to think about? And what are the futures that you are watching emerge that, again, are getting your attention, mm. either because you're excited by them or you're terrified by them? Yeah, well, I'll start off with the latter because I think it's probably the uh, the most, uh, in some ways, imminent that I uh, probably feel and see. So, as a as a card carrying Manoa school futurist, right, I always try to keep my head within the kind of the the four futures archetypes. Um, yeah. I think what's interesting is is given my doctoral research, which was which was on geoengineering, that uh, you know, looking at large scale manipulation of the global climate system in response to you know global warming and climate change, that that really kind of transformed my thinking. I say that actually, there is no future within which we don't have to some way think about adaptation, mitigation, responsivity to the challenges and and the changes that we're seeing now uh, with transformations at the at the global scale of climate. So. I mean, obviously, right now, right, we're hearing stories about uh, you know, massive sort of, you know, temperature um, and weather challenges in India. Obviously, then we saw this, you know, not too long ago in Australia. So I, I think for me, there's there's a real need to think about how are we going to fundamentally deal with, uh, you know, futures that, that actually, and, and we realize the models are constantly being updated. Uh, that, that maybe we can't even fully comprehend. I mean, because we have no idea what these worlds start to look like. So one, one statistic that I always, I always come back to, and it was sort of buried in, a, in an IPCC report. So, you know, these large sort of, you know, climate change report. And this was on um, sort of sea level rise and coastal shifts. And, and what really caught my eye was, was they had estimated that by the 2080s, there will be somewhere between 1.8 and 5.2 billion people living in low-lying coastal regions mm -hmm. and that that population uh, will be susceptible to essentially the extreme weather that is already happening now and that we expect to exacerbate in the decades to come. And so that got my thinking around what does a world look like with 1.8 to 5.2 billion people not being able to essentially like habitate the space that maybe for generations that they've been living with. So, you know, when I think about 
the futures that are on my radar and the futures that you know keep me up at night. Uh, it's stuff like that. And certainly as as someone you know who who wants to believe in the different kinds of possible futures and and also to take seriously the you know the preventable futures approach. Uh, I think that I, yeah, I'm not sure that we. I, I'm not sure that we'll be in a space to to speak, uh, you know, as we are now in, in, in a very short time about these issues. So I, I think that's why there's, you know, it's it's become a critical aspect of my work. And, and obviously with different projects, you, you know, you can presence it in different ways. But for me now, there's just no way to do this work and to think about the future and, and to engage without without having this be a significant aspect of it. So that's the, that's that's the heavy stuff, right? Um, I I'd have to say, you know, on a on a certainly on a related note, but but I'd say even even more so, I think the opportunities are quite extraordinary. Is is you know that the immensity of that, and obviously not everyone realizes or feels or is is going to be impacted by that in the same way, has created a certain sense of opportunity where we realize that change is imminent. Change has to happen. So. You know, the conversations that are happening around global commons, the conversations that are happening around, uh, you know, finding, you know, better ways of, you know, of organizing ourselves socioeconomically. I mean, the fact that even in the last, let's say, five years, you've got, you know, newspaper headlines around post-capitalism, right? Certainly with the global financial crisis in 2008, there was kind of a question. But, you know, now the way that we're talking about universal basic income, uh, you know, some of the political shifts that, that we're seeing happening. Uh, that are obviously in response to the rise of the right globally. I think it's quite dynamic time to be doing futures work. You know, certainly I am always interested in communication technologies and so how we're choosing to connect with one another and how we're choosing to, you know, find ways of, of obviously using really powerful media to share and to create. And I think that's something that is is just going to continue to flourish as as next generation technologies sort of emerge. I, I also, I guess, from a, a on the going the other direction, I I was really fortunate for a number of years to be working with Zia Sadar at the the center and and the team there at the Center for Post Normal Policy and Future Studies. And uh, I really got to kind of go back to my roots in some ways and, and draw on my religious studies degree uh, because we had a large project on Muslim futures. And so that was that entailed a number of workshops across Europe. I also got a chance to go to Egypt and do a bit of work, and and that was really great because I, I got to, to to think about community level impacts and think about specifically values and identity and to kind of do a very sort of you know human futures uh, type work. I mean, obviously the human aspect is always there in the work, but but to always bring it back to a specific community and specific identities. Uh, and obviously there's, you know, that's a, that's a very global perspectivism, but also highly localized, right? Depending on the context. So I think that was, uh, I think that was a really great experience for me and, and, and really brought to bear a lot of the questions that I'd had previously coming up with in futures. Uh, and obviously then links back to climate change. So a, a lot of, a lot of Muslim societies are going to be the ones at the, at the forefront of the shifts that are happening. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, in my experience, people who have very, very strong values that are, you know, that are grounded in faith are often seem and organisationally are often, they appear to have a, they have like a philosophical bedrock about how they determine what to do in the face of disruption. Yeah, more so than people who, who possibly would profess to be more modern and more sophisticated, but then tend to tend to lack a real philosophical bedrock as to, you know, their own identity and their own, if you like, purpose for existence. What do you say to that? Yeah, I, I think that was my experience as well is, you know, there's, uh, and, and certainly I think there are differences among the traditions. So, you know, dealing with explicitly a, a faith-based community, uh, what I found is that it really was a, it, it provided a trajectory. So, you know, there, there was an understanding that faith was going to, I think, like the future itself, be something that was uncertain, but there was a certain kind of an ethos or a spirit of journeying to it, that this is going to be a, a way that you made by walking. 
And so there was an expectation that there would be highs and lows, that you know, there would be doubts along the way, that there would be challenges, but at least that there was a sense that we were going to walk this path and that, that it was going to be something that, that was going to be sort of trodden together and that there were people to kind of journey with and that it was something that, that we knew what we were being guided by and guided towards. And I think that that was quite quite really interesting and compelling to see because I think, like you said, you don't always see this within futures work. In fact, sometimes you you see people in communities in a state of future shock, right? Where there's yeah. they're sort of scrambling yeah. to get their hands on something. But but working specifically within uh, and working on Muslim futures was, was really quite profound because of seeing the, you know, seeing it as something guided by faith. And I've, I've had a chance to talk to other people within doing this work. So Jay Gary looks at this a lot from the Christian perspective and, and thinking about, you know, how that shapes his own practice. It's, yeah, it's been quite interesting to see you know, that as a, as, as a way of doing futures emerge. But again, this was really, it was really interesting to see people guided by this and to have that kind of pull into the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you described there, I mean, you know, the metaphor of the, of the journey where the individual's journey of, of faith is itself uncertain. It is not, as you say, there are actually highs and lows in the faith journey of a person. You, you know, there are times when you have strong faith and strong certainty, and there's times when you have little faith and little certainty. And that's part of the path that you walk, and you don't walk it by yourself, but you walk it with everybody else. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think uh, to tie this back into you know my own experience in the futures community, I, I don't. I mean, I was raised Catholic, which means that's a great way to get someone not to believe in, in faith, I suppose, as the saying goes. But it's been interesting to think about the, the Catholic sort of experience of community and, and maybe even not explicitly, but I, I sort of, you know, implicitly have, have found the attachment, like I said previously, to community to be one of the most rewarding and compelling aspects of doing futures work. And I think that there's something to be said for, for having that. And, you know, when I go to conferences like the Asia Pacific Futures Network, I, I think even last time I stood up and said, for me, it's therapy, you know, to be able to come to this uh, <laughs> meeting and see friends and to share experiences. And to so it, it almost feels like a spiritual experience in that way to be able to, to be within communities like that and to be able to, you know, share and grow and learn. And like you said, have, you know, have the ups and downs and to kind of, you know, come together in, in, in that kind of way. Question four is the one about how we talk about ourselves and what we do. And how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what you do? Yeah, well, I, I have a, a bit of a frame that I go back to for this quite a lot. And, and I, let me contextualize this and say that when I told my father that I was going to get a master's degree in religious studies, and he was an accountant for a number of decades, <laughs> uh, his response was, well, okay, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And then, of course, I down the road tell him I, I want to be a futurist. And, you know, he's sort of scratching his head like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought the religious studies degree was bad enough, but here you are now wanting to <laughs> talk to people about the future for a living, right? Um, He's come around. He's come around. But my, my the sort of the bumper sticker phrase that I use is a is a quote by the the French uh, theoretician and philosopher Michel Foucault, and he's talking. He was talking about his own work, and so the first thing he says is, "I'm no prophet." So you know, even with my father, he was asking, "Oh, is this like you know, are you doing forecasting? Is is there like predictive analytics element?" Like, no, 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 no. Of course, right? Like, you know, it's not about predicting the future. It's not about you know knowing it is about being, uh, you know, having a certain understanding of uncertainty of being able to deploy that, right? Using the future as a resource is a, is a really great phrase that UNESCO has used for a number of years. And, and even the idea of being literate with different futures so that, you know, Riel Miller's work and thinking about the kind of, you know, frame around, are we able to be articulate in, in how we think about the future? Uh, and again, very explicit, but also the implicit ways. And the second Part of that Foucault quote for me is, is my favorite. He says that, again, he's no prophet. Uh, his job, essentially, is to make windows where there are walls. And yeah. I love that turn of phrase because for me, it, it really is all about seeing 
something in, in a new way or seeing something that previously we weren't able to be seen. So obviously, you know, different approaches are great about, you know, pointing out assumptions, biases, prejudices, uh, illuminating the blind spots. What I also like about that phrase, not, not to be too geeky and from an architectural perspective, but you have to know which wall you can put a window in. If it's, exactly. if it's, if it's, a, if it's a load-bearing wall, like don't put a window, right? Like, you, you know, that's a bad idea. So there's a contextual awareness. There's a, a sense of attentiveness towards structure and, and system that, that are included in that. It's not just, okay, we're going to just have to see this from that perspective. But I also like that the whole idea of, of putting the window in is also you, you allow the light to come in. So, you know, how is it that we are illuminating things internally by, by having different views and different perspectives? And probably over the last three or four years, started to use that almost exclusively as, as sort of, you know, in the kind of the, the intro slide deck as the kind of hook to kind of give uh, a sense of, of what Futures is from my perspective. And I, and I also think as a practice, with the different organizations that I've, I've had a chance to work with. It's a, it's a nice metaphor for, for helping organizations understand that, right? I mean, if you walk in and you say, well, you know, now we're going to upend every process that you have and we want to really shift you internally. Like, oh, okay, well, why did we hire this person? But if you come in and say, look, you know, really what we're going to talk about is you know, seeing things differently and, and putting some windows into the walls. And yeah, okay, people kind of warm up to that a little bit, right? So it's a... Uh, it's a nice way I found to kind of open up the conversation space and to help give people a clear metaphor for understanding and digesting what futures hopefully at its best can do. When you're in the educational role, again, what are the ways that when you're teaching how to think and use the future, are there particular frames or, um, or ways of explaining it in the educational space that you found that are useful? I would say in the educational space, uh, what's, what's really quite compelling is to, again, to go back to, to games, so to play with uncertainty and to be able to debrief on that a little bit. I do use a few examples uh, from time to time that try to illuminate sort of this kind of you know, hindsight versus foresight. So there was, a, there was a fantastic tweet by the U.S. astronaut uh, Buzz Aldrin where apparently it seems to be somewhat legitimate. So, you know, the astronauts from the Apollo mission go up to space. They come back down, they crash in the Pacific Ocean, they're repatriated through Honolulu, and somehow at some point, a customs form surfaced. So, <laughs> so somebody at somewhere, and, and maybe it was a bit of an inside joke, um, said, okay, I mean, technically you left the country, technically you've come back, so you have, to, you have to do what we've always done, right? You have to do the kind of business as usual stuff. So there, there apparently exists this form that's been signed by the astronauts. And what's crazy about it, it actually says on there, you know, what, what did you cargo? And it says moon dust, moon rocks. Um, there's also a line on there, like, will this, did the, I think it says something like, did the, will this lead to the spread of disease? And of course it says to be determined because they didn't know. But it even gets more absurd. So apparently the astronauts got paid uh, travel pay because going to the moon was a business trip. So mm -hmm. per NASA regulations, they had to get, you know, clock their mileage. So I, I love that example because in, in futures work and certainly in the education space, we always focus on the moonshot, right? Like, let's, let's think about the kind of the, the big thing, right? The innovation, blah, blah, blah. But what I like about this is, is sometimes futures is useful for kind of like pointing out the absurd, right? So what, is, what are we doing now that 30 years from now is going to be ridiculous, right? In, in a negative way, right? And what are, if we look back, how do we see things that, you know, have kind of been sunsetted or antiquated? But I love this example because it also reflects in, in, and I think students really gravitate towards it to say that, you know, just because someone says we have to do this or it's always being done this way doesn't limit the kind of, you know, the moonshot opportunities. So, yeah. so it kind of works both ways, right? You know, I mean, the fact that, that this form exists didn't stop NASA from going to the moon. Uh, didn't mm -hmm. stop the astronauts from doing whatever. It just after the fact, we had to kind of clean up and do the you know the kind of paperwork stuff, right? It's like it's like you do the really amazing event, the engagement, right? And then you have you still have to write the report. So so I like it. I, I like that example uh, in the sense that uh, you know I think it yeah. gives students a sensibility. It also you know gets people to laugh, so it's a little bit disarming. You know, a nice play on the kind of hindsight versus foresight perspective. We are naturally attracted by the profound, but we also are somehow liberated by the profane. 
and the two and the future works in both levels. Like you say, Kennedy made the famous speech about going to the moon and coming back again, and and so we we want to remember that. And then the profane is when you come along and say, and did you know that we gave them a declaration form? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that sacred profane dynamic also is is nice as a tie back into the kind of the, the kind of bellwether that people have for futures, right? And thinking about sort of you know the the spiritual and religious aspects of that. You know, mm. how do we how do we balance those you know those aspects at, at community levels, and how do communities utilize those in, in different ways, and and what what will those even mean in in you know different futures when when we're having these global transformations? Because we've already seen these things kind of shift already. Uh, and and certainly, I think socially, those are those are the real interesting questions. You know, when you get to the kind of futures that people are really living and breathing, you know, the futures that are that are every day. That that's that's really, I think, quite quite the interesting work. Okay, John, we're at the last questions phase. So this is our open question. Um, what you're doing in um, in Kazakhstan and uh, and Central and Central Asian futures? Yes, I, I'm so excited and really glad to have the chance to to be able to talk a little bit about this. It's uh, as you, as you said, it's a bit of a journey from uh, from Hawaii to Almaty, Kazakhstan. But I couldn't be happier and couldn't feel more privileged and excited to be to be here doing this work. So. Uh, I think like like any journey, this started with a, an interesting connection. So it turns out that the dean of the business school at uh, at Narhos University, uh, the first ever course that he stepped into was Jim Dater's intro to futures class at the <laughs> University of Hawaii. And so, you know, fast forward a decade later, and I had just finished my PhD. I was thinking about getting back into higher ed, but not quite sure about what the landscape was. And this email comes across as a forward from Jim and says, hey, look, is anybody, you know, interested? And, and, and really the subtext is anyone crazy enough to kind of go, you know, fly over to Kazakhstan and check this out? And I think, okay, sure, why not? And, you know, it was relatively close for me. My wife is from Belarus, so culturally there's a, you know, there's some, some similarities there. And I flew over last December I was absolutely charmed by the people and the plays. And to be honest, they dangled a really big carrot. They basically said, come over, help us build out this program. We want to offer it at the undergraduate level. We want to build up graduate programs. We, we, we are the only university in the, the former Soviet bloc of, of Central Asia to be doing this. And we will support you. So it's not an opportunity that comes around very often you know, to go in a place where futures is not entirely new, but still very, very much not on people's radars. So a lot of the futures work that's been done here is high level strategy driven by externals. You know, you're kind of like McKinsey, Boston Consulting type stuff. But this is very much going to be future studies 101 type stuff. And obviously with you know, being in the business program, we get to have a really interesting angle around new models for, you know, business and obviously reinforcing sustainability and bringing a real futures component to that. It's really great to be in a space where this, this is quite new. And, and I will say that actually I've made some amazing connections. So I came and found out that there was a, a woman here, Anel, who had received a grant from a UK organization and was doing community level visioning workshops. Uh, and then there was another connection through Zia of a, of a woman who wanted to include uh, the post-normal times uh, theory and approach for her research uh, with Muslim communities in Central Asia. So, you know, I come in thinking, oh, I'm the, you know, I'm the new person, you know, this is a new thing. But actually, <laughs> Futures was happening, right, in, in, in different ways. I'm just bringing the, the more sort of, okay, this is future studies, this is kind of the, you know, the approaches that we have to the, to the conversation. So what I love about being here and what I love about uh, Almaty is that it really is a global city uh, you feel very much the local culture and context as well. Uh, and it really is just a, a great opportunity to kind of build up local capacity. So we've already brought on a few members of our team. We've got a, really a range of projects. We're going to focus on uh, Central Asia Muslim futures. We're going to focus a bit on uh, educational context within Kazakhstan. So in Almaty alone, in a city of less than 3 million people, there are 38 universities. 
So it really is a, a, a dynamic space. Um, across Central Asia, uh, the demographics are similar to what we find uh, in parts of Africa. So you've got about half the population under the age of 30. Uh, you've got huge shifts that are happening, uh, I think, socially uh, around identity. So big, big generational differences. Older generations would speak local language, Kazakh and Russian. Younger generations are all watching you know, any kind of video on YouTube and fully globalized. So, so I think it's a really dynamic space as well kind of be in and to be able to do futures work. Uh, and again, we've got support from the university. We're really just in startup mode. So we're growing out our institute. We haven't even launched our website yet. Uh, we're trying to get some local projects under our belt, working with the city level government to do some futures around the kind of general development plan. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting time. I mean, to be honest, it still has a new car smell. So we're really just mm -hmm. kind of getting the ball rolling, but uh, I couldn't be happier. We're going to bring some, hopefully, some other folks in from the outside and hire some more local folks and, and try to do something special and unique here. And, and so for me, it's an investment. Almaty is now home. I'm, I'm, I'm in for the long haul. So it's a, you know, people ask me and say, look, this is, you know, I, I don't put a number on it, but it's, it, for me, it's definitely a five-year, maybe seven-year project. I mean, it's something that, you know, is going to take time to grow and to have legs, and I, I really want to see it through. So I, again, I feel really privileged and, and, and blessed to be able to be here doing this work. I hope that we can keep FuturePod going for a while. And if we can keep FuturePod going for a while, then I'm sure we're going to come back and um, have a chat to you in a couple of years' time and you can tell us about the intervening period, about what you've learned, about how they're teaching us about futures work. Because that's the nature of when, when a relatively new culture grabs the chance to create the future. They aren't beholden to the way that the future was done in America or Australia or Europe. They'll find their own way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Definitely. No, and I think that's, that's what I love about it is I'm, I'm learning a lot and I'm, I'm getting to live and breathe futures here and to see it from this perspective and to, to again, to be in a place where, where you've got such an amazing rich history. I mean, this, this is the heart of the old Silk Road and obviously now we're hearing about the new Silk Road. And so it's a, yeah, it's a really fantastic. Look, John, it's been a, it, it's been fantastic to catch up again and see how, how really happy you are and I am I am so happy that you are so excited and energised um, by your move to, to Kazakhstan and uh, on behalf of uh, the FuturePod community, uh, thanks for taking some time out to talk to us. It's an absolute pleasure. Again, really special uh, to be included as part of this group and really privileged and uh, yeah, love the work you guys are doing and yeah, really, really thankful. So thanks so much. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.